Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. From the gas pump to the grocery store. Inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, Oteil Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Osiris. All right, we're back here on Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters. This is episode 24, and my guest a little later on today is Nate Hiltz from the Dead South. Have you all checked out the Dead South yet? This is a really cool, really unique, and really popular band that I honestly did not know too, too much about before digging in ahead of my interview with Nate. And they have a really fascinating story. I'm going to be talking more about that in the intro today so stick around for all that good stuff i've got some great sponsors this season really excited to be working with artist works artist works is your go-to for online music learning they have a phenomenal roster of instructors who cover a really wide range of instruments and genres and levels as well. So if you're a beginner just getting into it, or if you're an experienced musician and you're looking to take everything up a notch, you really have to check out ArtistWorks. One of their their main, most compelling features is the video exchange platform. You send in videos of yourself playing to your teacher. They check it out, critique, send a video back, a great way to learn. And I've had the pleasure of playing with and 
interviewing and even living with some of the artist works instructors, Chris Eldridge from the Punch Brothers, my old roommate from Nashville, Sierra Hull, who has been a guest on the podcast, Brian Sutton, Tony Trishka, and Noam Pikelny, two of the best banjo players ever. So what more can you really say? Artist Works is an effective and vast resource for musicians of all levels. So if you're looking to up your game and take your experience with music to a deeper level, check them out at artistworks.com. My other sponsor this season is Orvis. And I'm sure if you've listened to the podcast in the past, or if you follow me on social media, you know that I am a very passionate fly fisherman and conservationist. And I was so excited to team up with Orvis. They're helping me make the pod happen this season. And yeah, I'm just a really big fan of this brand. They make great stuff. Long before I ever knew the the good people at Orvis, I was using a Helios fly rod. Now I've got a few in my quiver. They're incredible. And they've got such a wide range of outdoor gear. It's not just fly fishing stuff. Really high quality. Most of it is made in the USA. And one of the things that I really love about Orvis is the focus that they put on conservation, which is so, so critical right now. 5% of all pre-tax profits go directly to protect and preserve the natural world. That's huge. And as I said on the last episode, these conservation efforts are just so incredibly timely right now. If you're a person who enjoys the outdoors, whether it's fly fishing or mountain biking or just getting out there to enjoy the natural world, you really need to also be thinking about what you can do to preserve and protect the environment yourself, whether it's small changes in your lifestyle or things like supporting brands that are leading the charge in this department. And Orvis is certainly one of them. I know for me, that's something that's really inspiring and draws me to them. So hats off to Orvis. Check them out. We are also brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris has been with me since the beginning, and they are behind all kinds of incredible podcast content, including a new show on Osiris called Sugar Maple that is Really fascinating and really well done. If you're a music fan, you will love this new pod they've got going. We're also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the String Dusters new record label. And we recently released the String Dusters new record, Toward the Fray. So check that out and stay tuned to Americana Vibes for all kinds of new releases coming your way soon. I actually took a week off from the podcast because I was in the studio producing the new Sweet Lilies record, which will come out on Americana Vibes. Not sure exactly when, but I can tell you that we got some amazing work done. We had Jason Hahn from String Cheese playing drums, and I'm really proud of what the band accomplished and can't wait for this record to hit the airwaves. Also excited to be digging back in here on the podcast, and I have to say, one of my favorite things about doing Inside the Musician's Brain these last few years is all the incredible music that it's introduced me to as I get ready for these interviews I feel like as this whole thing is evolving, for me, the best way to prepare is just to listen to recordings, live recordings, whatever I can find. And sometimes those guests are people that I know well and have played with, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's something entirely new. And that is definitely the case with this week's episode, which has given me great reason to go deep on the Dead South. I had certainly seen the name before, but again, there's just so much music crossing your radar screen, it's impossible to keep track of. But This band is incredibly unique. Their music is really, really cool, and they're super 
popular, and they have a really fascinating story about how they got established as a band. So if you look out across the landscape of different artists and bands, you see that there's a number of different paths that you can take to establish a fan base and a career. So for example, the String Dusters, I would say, have taken more of like a grassroots path. And we didn't have that much established before we got out on tour. And that was the model that we had observed in a lot of the bands that we looked up to. And we were just traveling town to town and honing our live show that then became our thing. Like that was our product, our thing that was connecting people to us. So we're out there doing that night after night. But there's another path that we see these days where bands and acts create something that, for lack of a better term, goes viral. And you're able to establish your profile through videos, songs, whatever online that allow you to build that fan base without super rigorous touring. Of course, you ultimately need to go out and capitalize on all this attention and sell tickets and sell merch and all that good stuff. But you can build that base before, in some, in the case of some bands, before you ever go out and tour, or in the case of other bands, you know, maybe you're established and then boom, you've got something that really hits and it really grows your fan base, but not because you were out playing, you know, a zillion shows a year. So I'm thinking of bands like Trampled by Turtles. I'll never forget when they had their video for Wait So Long that just you know, really push them up into that next category. And Wolfpack is another great example. I've got Corey Wong from Wolfpack coming up as a guest, shameless plug later this season. That was a really fascinating interview that I just did where I learned more about this phenomenon. And these are bands, yeah, that that create something that really builds that attention and builds that profile remotely. And for me, it's always so fascinating to observe that phenomenon when you see a band create something that just captures the imagination of huge numbers of people. So for a little context, Dead South have over a million subscribers on their YouTube channel, and they have a video for a song called In Hell I'll Be In Good Company, which really kind of put them on the map, that has almost 300 million views. That's an astronomical number. And I know from talking to Nate that that was a huge feather in their cap, a huge, you know, step up in their career. And they just dropped two new albums, EPs, Easy Listening for Jerks, parts one and two. And I would really recommend that you check out the video for a song called Chop Suey. This is a cover like the rest of the tracks on these EPs. But the originality of this song, the sound, the way the band presents it, and the video are just over the top. And that video's already got over 600,000 views in just a few weeks. And they have a number of other videos that are in the millions of views as well. YouTube, by the way, still the number one place where people discover new music. So if you're a musician, you need to be playing that game. But stepping back from my role as a musician and just as a fan and as someone who is fascinated by these trends, I have to say, when this kind of thing goes down, it it kind of blows my mind. Like, why, why does that happen? What's the explanation for why one thing catches fire and another thing doesn't? But you know when something captures all these different people's imaginations that something really big is going on. And there's no formula for this, but I do think there are some some pretty key prerequisites. You know, I would say originality, 
honesty and conviction all play a potentially huge role in creating something that's wildly popular. So if you put in the time and you pour your heart and soul into something, you definitely have a shot at that. And of course, the algorithms can influence the trajectory of a video or a song. And of course, if you have crazy high production, uh, you know, for your videos, or you have huge budgets to work with, yes, that does get you ahead of the game. But in terms of smaller artists who are breaking through, it becomes really unmistakable when fans start to latch on, fall in love with something, incessantly share it, and it rises above all those algorithmic barriers, and boom, you have this huge universal moment. And I think to me, it proves why music is kind of the closest thing that we have to magic that I know of. It's unexplainable, but it's got this undeniable mass appeal. All these people connecting to this same one thing all at the same time. Of course, who knows if they're even hearing, seeing, reacting to the same thing. Like we, we don't all like things for the same reason, but when something has that level of appeal, you know that there is some real mojo in there, some kind of it factor that clearly ties back to those traits that I was mentioning earlier, you know, originality, honesty, and conviction. And ultimately, the proof is just in the pudding, whether or not you think something is good, if the masses fall in love with it, that right there is proof to me that there's something really meaningful there. And this big universal moment is shared by all these different people. There's a lot of there's a lot of energy there, a lot of energy released in that moment. And if you ask me, that's just one more piece of proof that we are all connected as human beings. Though we may perceive things in different ways, we may fall in love with things for different reasons. There are traits, there are qualities, there are messages, there are emotions in those works that catch fire that are certainly universal. And I should mention really quick, an important point in all this is that, of course, not everything that you create is going to go big like that. You should never expect that. And if you're an artist and you create something that you believe in that doesn't catch on, you really, your job then is to keep plowing forward, honing your craft and trying again, that persistence, that belief in yourself and that ability to shrug off what you might perceive as failure. Those are huge hallmarks of successful people in all fields, not just music, but in the music field, it's crazy for me then to sort of think of it from the artist perspective, you know, when you're creating something, you're just like sitting in a bedroom with a guitar, you know, strumming out a few chords and who could ever predict that it's going to be this huge, powerful, universal moment. It's so cool. And the Dead South have certainly accomplished this. Check them out. See what you think. It may be your thing. It may not. Doesn't matter. Like I said, the proof is in the pudding. They've created something that many people connect with. And for me, really fascinating to behold and also really inspiring. I would say that seeing this kind of thing go down, observing a band like the Dead South, especially a band as original as the Dead South, it pushes me to stay focused on my own craft, listen to kind of craft my own voice, keep putting things out there in the world, regardless of whether they catch on or not. And I would encourage you to do the same, whether you're an artist or not. And this can, of course, unfold on a much smaller scale, but still be extremely meaningful. It's just about doing things that we care about 
and we believe in. And of course, one of the one of the great things about doing what you believe in and not just what you think you should do or what you think will be successful is that you are fulfilled in the process and perhaps nothing is more valuable than that. And I've got more on that in an upcoming episode of the podcast. But right now, I want to move ahead to my interview with Nate Hiltz. Here we go. Inside the musician's brain, and my guest today is Nate Hiltz from the Dead South, an amazing band that has pretty recently crossed my radar screen. But love the music, and really glad we uh, are getting a chance to connect here. Nate, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, how are you doing, man? It's I know it's been a crazy last couple years for musicians and for humans in general. How have you been getting by? I've uh, been doing all right. Uh, I would say that the beginning of the pandemic was a little bit of a weird blessing in disguise. Like I know it shut the world down and it's really hard on people, but it was the first time that I probably got to rest in about eight years. (laughs) So I was, uh, that was nice for a bit. (laughs) Yeah. I've heard Um, that story from a few people and, and I think we felt some of that too. You know, it's like, would you have taken a pause like that if it wasn't forced upon you? And I think for a lot of people, the answer is no. It sounds like that's the case for you guys. Oh, 100%. Yeah. We would have just kept going through. And then we would have taken maybe a month break. And that would have been kind of nice, but it still probably wouldn't have been enough. Like It's just this thing of like the sleep clock and, and always working. For the past sure. eight years, we've been touring like crazy. And, and it just... You don't realize it until you get there, but you're just kind of like sitting on this burnt out edge of like, sure. I should really sleep for a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, and touring like crazy. What does that mean for you guys more specifically? Like how many shows a year? What does the schedule look like? Uh, well, when we first started, it was kind of constant. It was, we would, we started touring heavily in 2014. We started going to Europe a lot and playing in Germany and places like that. We'd probably go three, four times a year. And then we'd come back and then we'd start hopping all over Canada, um, playing a few nights a week and then every weekend for sure. So we were playing probably 300 some shows a year for a while. Woo, 300 yeah. a year. Okay. Let yeah. that sink in for a minute, people. 300 shows a year. And you guys are based, of course, for those who don't know, in Canada, in Regina, which is just north of Montana, correct? Yeah, we're just north of Montana and uh, North Dakota. We kind of cut the line where Regina is. Okay. Regina. Okay. And you guys have established, it sounds like a really strong foothold in Europe. How did that evolve? Did they discover your music there and then you started to capitalize on that? Or were you just, uh, you know, was that high on the list of priorities as far as touring? No, it was actually kind of, uh, an accident, not, not necessarily an accident. You know, those, you go play those festivals that have like everyone there, you know, there's like, panels happening left and right it's called canadian music week in toronto and we're just kind of just starting to get our foot into touring and try all this stuff out and we're heading to toronto and the only advice we got from people was don't expect anything to happen 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So we drove all the way to Toronto, which is for us is like 30 some hours. So we drove all the way there. We played and it just so happened that a German guy was there who has a label in, out of Hamburg. His name is, his name is uh, Jörg Tresp. And uh, he he wasn't even going to come to the show because he was jet lagged and tired, but someone convinced him to come for one show. So uh, he showed up for one song and stayed for the whole set and then talked to us after the show and said, you got to come to Germany. I want to sign you guys. So there you go. We started going and we just hit it repeatedly just a few times, four times a year. And it was just like a snowball effect. Yeah. There's an interesting lesson there, you know, for, especially for like up and coming bands who sometimes when they're playing showcases, I've definitely heard that question, you know, Oh, there, there weren't that many people here. Was it really worth doing? Only that one right person needs to be in the audience. That that one right person who can really open some doors, and and I think that's a good rationale why, you know, you just need to take advantage of as many opportunities as you possibly can. So that that got you guys starting started over there, and it sounds like the music just resonated. Yeah, well, I don't know what it is exactly, but when we were playing our first few shows there, we'd booked. I think it was 11 shows in 12 days. So we just went, we basically played every day and just drove all over Germany. But we, people were coming to the shows and obviously they had never heard of us. So we started asking people, why, why are you here kind of thing? And they just said, we saw a Canadian band was playing. So we thought we would come check it out, which I thought was really cool. Cause huh. I know around here you don't see, Hey, a German band's playing. Let's go see what they're about. Yeah. Right. Uh, that, that doesn't happen as much. Yeah. Um, well, main thing I'd love to chat with about you today is kind of just how, how your guys' music came to be, because it's hard to categorize. And if you haven't taken a run on the Dead South stuff, there's some really, really great, you guys have two studio albums and now the new live album, and you have two EPs coming in March of 2022, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So there's there's some great stuff to dig into. And the music is just really, really unique, hard to categorize. And that that ranges from the songwriting to the instrumentation to just the vibe and energy of the music. So take us inside the concept. You know, who are some of your big influences and the writing process? How long has has sort of that been been going on? Because like you guys formed in 2012. Is that correct? That's yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So, you know, it hasn't been all that long that you guys have been together, but tell us where the sound came from. Well, the sound was, uh, it's hard to put it, but it's kind of an accident. Like the idea of it was when I first met Colton, our banjo player, um, I was listening to bands like Trampled by Turtles and Old Crow and The Devil Makes Three at the time. And it just so happened that he was too. And he had just got a banjo and our meeting was just kind of like serendipitous. Like it was kind of meant to be. But anyways, when we first started, the idea was kind of to play not necessarily bluegrass, but kind of bluegrass style music, you know, with a banjo and a guitar and, you know, some bass and whatever else we could find. Uh, but we quickly realized that without really knowing our instruments that well, that we weren't good at bluegrass at all. And <laughs> this sound that we put out was just kind of what naturally came out of us. So Colton was a metal guitar player, really good guitar. I I just got a side note here. I'm easily the worst guitar player in our band, and I'm the <laughs> guitar player in our band. 
Um, uh, but yeah, Colton was a metal guitar player. And when he transferred over to the banjo, it just transferred over for him real well. He can flat pick. He can play metal riffs fairly easily. He can uh, claw hammer and three finger style, which is really nice. So our songs get that nice versatility there. And his, his musical backgrounds are, again, like metal, you know, like hard metal. And then like some pop punk and stuff like that. And then uh, my influences are all scattered all over. They range from like Meatloaf to The Doors to, you know, the dirtiest punk band you could find in a garage to, I love know, it. yeah, classical music. Danny, our cello player, he's classically trained. He had to learn to play a different style when he got up because uh, he started out sitting down and we told him that wasn't an option anymore. So he mm. threw a strap on his cello and had to learn to bow. But he's got classical influence and some like indie rock and stuff like that. Again, like really good guitar player. I remember in grade nine, that guy was easily ripping Zeppelin solos all the time. Uh, and then Scott, he's kind of a singer-songwriter, more type dude. Um, he was always jamming at bistros and restaurants and playing for people. And uh, he also comes from kind of a metal and punk background as well. Yeah. Well, I love the way that you guys bring these styles together. Now, are you the main songwriter? Uh, to a degree, yeah, but we're all songwriters for sure. Okay, and is that part of your craft something that had been going on for a while before the band started? Not really. I started playing guitar when I was nine, and I kind of, kind of played throughout high school, and then I moved to Quebec for a year of school, and I bought a twenty-five dollar guitar, and then I started playing again, um, and when I came back home, just started writing. A lot more and i wrote a little bit in quebec as well so it kind of started when i was like 20 21 when it really started happening it's interesting because i definitely noticed this in your guys sound you guys have just a really quintessential band sound like all the playing styles and even the songwriting really seem like they are evolved and kind of forged formed in the context of this band which is such a cool opportunity to have it's similar to what we've got going on in the string dusters you know everything that that i work on as far as my banjo playing it's really like 90 percent plus geared toward the dusters and it's just such a cool opportunity you know to become a musician is great and to learn a craft but to be able to do it in the context of a band that's actually out there playing shows performing is is really awesome and i hear that with you guys yeah, right on. It's you definitely know, a thing. Yeah. Just just the way that you guys have learned, it just, just seems all very tailored to the music that you guys play, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Now there's I noticed there's um the old record, the older record, Good Company, there's a lot of there's more three finger banjo picking on that. And the new record, um, Sugar and Joy has a lot more claw hammer on it, correct? Mm -hmm. And and <laughs> so is that a cause that it's it's I love the three finger banjo stuff. You know that's obviously what I do, but it's almost like the claw hammer is the more of the sound that you would expect in a band that's sort of on the fringes like that. It's like a little rowdier, a little more. Um, I don't know. In a way, it just kind of I, I love the stuff. I mean, I love it all, but there's stuff on the new record that where it really where it really fits. Was that a conscious decision by you guys? No, not really. I actually just realized we're missing an album in between two called Illusion and Doubt. That one is probably where we started leaning a little more to Clawhammer. Okay. Not away from Three Finger, but 
it just sometimes when you when we go to jam the song like let's say there's a skeleton done and like, hey check this out colton will try through finger he'll try claw hammer and he'll try with a pick and sure. just see what is the best suited for the vibe of the song and i think in some of them the yeah, i guess the claw hammer and the pick can be a little more chaotic um in like a almost like a groovier way yeah. yeah yeah it fits but the three finger playing is great because it's just it's tight you know it's got those characteristics of of bluegrass the timing the delivery of the notes you know <laughs> the vocabulary and the things that are being played are, are a little bit different but that part of the aesthetic is really there and and i think that that's i think that that's really cool now have you guys like how do you feel like you guys have been you know received by the bluegrass crowd or do you do you feel like people you know try to put you in that world and and sort of judge you in that context or do you feel like your music has more existed outside of that i'd say a little bit of all three um well when i say all three i mean like people have placed us there we also kind of wanted to be there a little bit because we stemmed a lot from that like the idea was to kind of try and be like a bluegrass band but then our natural beings took over and, you know, we were a little something else from that. Um, how we're received, I think I, it's it's been pretty mixed. Some people love it, especially from the outside world where we're actually introducing people to bluegrass who had never heard of it or didn't even like it before. And like, oh, there's other bands that are kind of not exactly like you guys, but similar that I can also get on board with, which is cool. And I think that that's kind of the best part about it is opening people's minds to different styles of music and not not being closed off about it you know like i understand that bluegrass is a very tight-knit community and you know we've participated with the ibmas and and other bluegrass events and they go over really well and we have a blast and we get to watch yeah we get to watch great bluegrass bands and love that too um we're just kind of like, like you said we're hard to classify so we're we're kind of thrown all over we play at metal festivals and punk festivals and you know bro country and then bluegrass and then yeah we're everywhere well that's that's a huge advantage for you guys you know mm -hmm. that's a great that's a great aspect of the music that it does fit into all these different places because that's just going to create more opportunities for you right along the way yeah it creates more opportunities in it and again it, it keeps you open you're like oh that's really cool that you discover new bands that way. And, you know, you meet new people that way. And you're not just kind of in this, this little group. You're, you're kind of everywhere, which is really nice. Stay tuned. And we'll get back to my interview with Nate in just a moment. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just $15 a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking... 
I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. The Bluegrass crowd, they are a very educated group. And, you know, I think for them... And one of the interesting things about bluegrass goes without saying is that so many of the people who are fans of the music, they also play the music. You know, they're they're invested on a level that your normal music fan is not necessarily invested. And so that gives them this increased kind of ownership over the music and the opinions that they have. But these days, and especially the world that we're a part of, and I mean, you know, we're a bluegrass band. If anything, you know, that that to me is the only word that you could use to categorize our music. But the scene that we're moving out into is people who are not necessarily accustomed so deep, you know, so deeply tied to the music. They don't have all those opinions and they're just able to appreciate it for whatever it is. And it's not predicated on some comparison to things that came before. And then all of a sudden you have all these new fans flooding in the door who just like it for what it is, you know, exactly, exactly. It sounds like that's what you guys are experiencing. Yeah. In a lot of ways, for sure. Like you're going to get the hate, because people expect it to be certain ways, especially if someone titles you with something. But uh, yeah, it's hard to, I don't know what we are. We just play music, you know? Well, <laughs> I love it, man. I'm I'm a fan. I, I When I, I remember hearing the first bit of In Hell I'll Be In Good Company, which was a big song for you guys, right? Probably your biggest song. And it just starts out like with that simple cello and the whistling and it's just like i got it you know it's really this cool it's cool this really cool resonant sound and and it it hits but it's very unique you know you never forget it once you hear it and it's got ties to a lot of the different sounds that are pretty prevalent in your music and you guys have really done some impressive stuff with video and it seems like that's been a big part of what has really put you guys on the map. Your YouTube channel has over a million subscribers, I think. <laughs> yeah. Which that's a huge metric for those, you know, who aren't necessarily accustomed to what that number is or where it should be like, that's huge, you know? And I know that you, the band sells a lot of tickets and you've made the rounds, but in band terms, you know, starting in 2012, eight, nine years is really actually not that, 
not that long. So I'm curious, how did that play out? You guys had made a decision to commit to making video early on because the video has a really distinct look and you guys have a really distinct look. I'm just curious to know a little bit more about how that part of the process unfolded for you guys. Yeah. Well, we, we were talking with one of our buddies at two brothers films, the one who did that video and a bunch of our other videos as well. And we kind of just made a deal with them at the time when we did one video, we're like, well, why don't we just do, we'll pay you for three videos or something. So that was the, the mindset of it. So right before that, we had did that same day where we started uh, filming in hell, be good company. We were filming banjo odyssey on a flatbed truck around Toronto where we'd go and stop traffic and play until we got kicked out and then go to the next <laughs> I spot. Love so that. we did, That's a great yeah, it was song. great. <laughs> we did like nine, nine spots in, in f- nine hours or something. Like it was, it was, it was nuts. We were out there all day. Um, so then anyways, we went from that into in hell and we had no idea what we were going to do. Our buddies were just like, well, why don't we just uh, do that dance you guys do in the song and we'll just try and do it in different locations. And we said, yeah, that sounds great. We, we did some of it in Toronto. And then when we got back home, we did some around Regina and, and the area and we released it really late. Like we had just released illusion and doubt. And then like oh, a few weeks later, we released this video and this video just completely overshadowed Delusion and Doubt and then brought everyone back to album number one. Uh, so yeah, the video game there, like we we had no idea what this would do. We just thought, you know, we'll just do a fun video with our buddies, maybe get a couple of views in it. and it just started spinballing. So was that weird for you guys that it took people back to the first album and wasn't necessarily focused on the most current thing or was it was it just like hey any attention is good attention uh again a little bit of both like yeah it's great getting the attention but also like we had we had just poured all of our you know time and energy into a whole new album where we we're like yeah this is gonna be cool and then <laughs> it kind of just gets left behind mind you it didn't necessarily get left behind like that one actually won a juno which is really cool that's oh, like cool. our Canadian Grammys. Yeah. Um, but still like nowhere near the attention that good company got, but mostly because of the song, right? Or songs in general, where we started the roots of us all. Sure. So then what happened after that? What did you guys notice when you went out on tour? Were there a lot more people suddenly coming out to the shows? Yeah. Um, it wasn't even that we were getting a lot more people because we were kind of getting very lucky with, the hard work we had put in previous to that video of like word of mouth. So we'd be going to spots where people had known us. So we'd see those crowds grow, but it's where we could go all of a sudden, all of a sudden we're getting messages from Australia, Mexico, all of a sudden we're showing up, we're going to play the state. We didn't start playing the States until like 2015 was our first time. Um, And then we didn't hit it again until 2017. Then all of a sudden shows are lining up and people want to come to these shows and stuff. Uh, it's like the whole world just opened up. And did you notice that everyone was singing along at the shows? Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the coolest part. Yeah. Isn't it? There's just, it's hard to describe to the unindoctrinated, but when you're on stage and the people own the song the same way that you do the creator and everybody is bringing it. I mean, that's just such a powerful energy. Mm. And it seems like that's what, That's what happens a lot of times when you get this kind of groundswell around one song. 
a lot of bands really make their mark just by touring, just by visiting these places over and over and over, building this grassroots crowd. But there's another track that it sounds like, you know, Dead South was was definitely on uh, to some degree where things catch underneath and then all of a sudden you head out to tour and there's way more attention than there was before. It's not necessarily this this slow burn thing. Yeah. And that's just it's always a it's always a fun story to hear. Have you guys been back out where I should say we're taping this interview end of November 2021. Have you guys been back out on the road and how has it felt? Yeah, we we've done. Uh, well, we have a whole year of makeup touring to do right now. So we're trying to catch up. So we just did uh, like two months ago, I guess now we were in the States. We started in Texas, uh, moved along to Tennessee, playing along down there, went all the way up to Chicago and Detroit, and then back down to Tennessee. Uh, that was really cool. We got to play the Caverns. That was that was fantastic. Yeah, we've and, done and, that one. That's cool. That is cool. Yeah. So we did that, and then we just got home from Europe last week. We were there for three weeks, and then next week we leave to the States again. And it's hopefully going to continue like that until November of next year. <laughs> and how does it feel? Does the momentum still still feel there and the, the energy, the attention, the crowds? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's still there, but obviously COVID's a lot trickier. I mean, people aren't coming for a number of reasons now. So you're, you've sold, let's even say 100% of your tickets and you got 60 to 70% showing up. Um, the tickets are still sold, but some of the seats are empty because you got people that don't want to go out still. People that bought a ticket two years ago and they forgot about it people that also can't make it anymore, people mm. that just don't want to be tested or or be vaccinated. And you start kind of seeing a lot more of that happening these days. Yeah, the drop count, a term mm -hmm. I had never heard until COVID. That refers to the number of people who bought tickets but who don't actually show up. And it's incredible. That number is, is as high as 30 40% in some markets. And so yeah. these tickets are sold and you hear that it's a sold out show, but you look out in the room and it's definitely not full. It doesn't reflect the numbers that you see on the settlement. And who knows how long that will continue, but I would agree that it seems like crowds are eager to get out there and see music and they've been away from it for a long time. And so it's just encouraging. You know, I wish you guys all the best. We'll be out there as well, just trying to to keep things going. And it is a bit of a brave new world, but it's good news that music is never going out of style. So we can we can bank on that. Let's talk a little bit about your um about your songwriting process sure. and and how how the songs come to life. Lyrics first music first is this something that you set aside big blocks of time for what does a songwriting process look like for you well that's changed over the years when we first started we basically would sit in a basement or a garage with a case of beer and jam almost every night of the week and songs would just start forming um and then there's also the uh, other style where someone comes up with like a riff and we build around the riff or someone comes with a skeleton of a song and we just kind of either love it so much that we don't touch it and we just add our parts or we kind of rework the skeleton being like, Hey, this and this, and this could be better. But even uh, but in the, even in the conception phase, sorry to interrupt you, you guys are working on this stuff as a group. It sounds like we were uh, at the beginning. Yeah. It was okay. a lot of times just sitting down together, jamming and then stuff would just start forming. Um, 
I would say majority of our of the first few songs were all made by jamming. And that's, that's that's so cool. Yeah. That's unique. And, and it is, yeah. And, and that's kind of how it, even on um, the newest one, Sugar and Joy, we were in Alabama and we had maybe six songs ready and we had to write another few songs when we were down there or finish them up and just jam them out and, yeah, just kind of go with it. It's a great album, man. Broken Cowboy. Dark, dirty road, a box full of gold. And I've been out here now, all on my own. It's real quiet here, just the way I like it here. There's no one to bother me except. That one was written before. I wrote that one. I love that uh, song. Yeah, that one almost didn't make the album too, actually. And and how does that go down? So you guys have a collection of songs. If you're getting ready to go in and cut a record, do you have a bunch of songs that are going to get left on the cutting room floor? Or does most of, of it get on the album? Uh, no, most of it gets on the album because we were so busy touring for so long that we weren't writing that much. But the reason that that song almost didn't make the album is because I was writing that for a completely separate reason. Um, but I'd showed it to the guys um, earlier on and they liked it and we were short one song on the album. So they twisted my rubber arm and and we got it on there. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a cool song. I love the, there's a story aspect to, I feel like a good bit of what you guys do. And it's this really cool storytelling approach that involves not just words that are put together in really interesting and thoughtful ways, but music and the sound to bring those stories to life, the energy of, of the content, the stuff that you guys are writing about. Is that something that's conscious for you guys in terms of how you bring the music to life? I, I definitely think that that's what happens. Um, I yeah. don't, like everyone's so... So the idea of the song is there, for example, and then everybody just starts adding their own parts. Like they have their own story to tell. And that's something that I didn't even realize until I'd listened back on our music. Like, Oh man, the banjo, what's it's telling its own thing there. And the mandolin, it's doing some cool shit. So I don't know if you can swear on this. Um, the cello <laughs> good, is doing man. its own thing, you know, and it's just like, everyone's got their own parts to play and they're just adding them as, as needed. And yeah, they're telling their own stories. It's really cool. I really appreciate that. And and even on the new record, like the first track, Active Approach, is just sort of this vibe-setting instrumental piece that kind of sets things up and, and sort of sends you off on this journey. And it's something very, very tangible in your guys' music is the, these stories, the, the, the vibe of what the words are saying really is supported by by the music in a very creative and meaningful way. So, you know, huge success on that front. I'm also curious to hear about like the live show concept. And, you know, you got these songs crafted, but, and the live album is great. The new, the new one you just put out, which is 
I'd really recommend to people to check that out because it sort of completes this picture, hearing you guys in the live environment and the amount of energy that the music has when it comes to life. But you guys also have this really incredible approach to the show and the look that you guys put on. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be and how you guys think about and approach the presentation of the music in that live environment. Well, um, when we first started playing, the idea was that we would all wear something similar. Maybe it was the same hat or matching shirts, matching shoes, for example. And probably three or four shows in, um, Colton, our banjo player, suggested we try suspenders and white shirts and ties. So we started there. And then as we kept doing that stuff, just started progressing. Um, Scott was always losing his tie, so he just started leaving his unbuttoned. <laughs> uh, Danny always kept his tie, so he kept it. Colton went to a Colonel Sanders-style kind of tie. And I never wore a tie. I wore a bolo tie, so that just stuck. Then I started getting a bit of a gut, so I added the coat. <laughs> and then everyone's kind of got their own different hats that we'd go. And it was just like an evolution of everyone's little little take on it. Uh, so that that just be kind of came our stage get up. And, and then in terms of how we deliver a show, we just try and deliver energy and, you know, just we kind of feed back and forth with the fans uh, on just trying to create this atmosphere of everyone having a good time. Yeah, you kill it, man. It's great. <laughs> it's great. I'm, I'm really bummed that I'm going to miss your upcoming show in Denver, but I'm sure that our, our paths will cross soon enough. So tell us a little bit about the, the upcoming music that you guys have, these two EPs that are dropping in March. Yeah, so we had this idea over the last few years to, um, to do just kind of like a little project within the Dead South of just doing EPs of stuff that we just want to goof around with, basically. So, uh, we decided to call it Easy Listening for Jerks Part 1 and 2, but the parts can always continue. It's not ending at 2. And basically, we just kind of do what we want. So for the first one, we're doing old bluegrass and traditional songs. Cool. And doing them a little bit more our way, but still sticking more so to the traditional side of it. And then part two is we're doing more of like old songs that we grew up listening to in high school and stuff. So you got like The Doors are on there. Um, covers and I don't want to give away any others yet but yeah I, I don't even know if the list of the songs is out yet but yeah it's like old punk or else rock songs and stuff okay. so yeah nice I'm excited to check that out what uh, what have you been listening to lately any any cool finds what's what's inspiring you oh these days um, well you know to be quite honest I don't listen to a ton on tour because we listen to or we listen to loud music almost every night playing Sure. Um, but uh, I listen to again a, a big mix. Like I listen to it a lot of Coulter Wall. He's our buddy here from Saskatchewan. Yeah. I just love the guy's voice and the way he he sings and plays and his style there. Um, I listen to Idols, which is also like you know a British punk band and a lot of that. Oh, I've been listening to El Michael's Affair, which is um, an instrumental band. Say the I'm name again. El Michael's Affair. Al Michaels affair. Okay. Yeah, they're great. They actually uh they actually covered a Wu Tang album of just instrumental and it's it's so good. Sweet. Uh, Love it. Yeah. That. Yeah. So just a lot of stuff like that. And then of course I, I delve into a lot of the old bluegrass still when I'm 
feeling like a little need a little pick me up and nice what's your go-to for old bluegrass i'm curious well it depends like i am a big fan of the uh country gentleman awesome so i i listen to a lot of their stuff also j.e mayner i really uh really enjoy his stuff and the way he plays and then of course like delve into the the scrugs and bill monroe and stuff like that i mean love it it's it's always good yeah so did you grow up around music? When when were you first exposed to all of that stuff? Well, to, to a degree, I guess. Like my mom put me in piano when I was young. That didn't last long. I wasn't very good. Um, then I went into saxophone. And again, that only lasts like two years. And I kind of got into guitar around that time. But a lot of my friends were playing music. So it was, and I just loved music so much. I was always wanted to be around it. But actually when I was young, um, so there's a, the town where my mom is from is called Wadena and, um, all the old dogs around there always used to play and they have a bunch of like handmade fiddles and stuff. And the old guys would get together and stuff. And unfortunately I missed that, but I think I should have been there for that because I'm looking for those guys all the time to like, you know, sit sure. around and play with. And, and I, I kind of like surround myself with those people now where I get that opportunity, but. Yeah, not no one in my family really plays music though. We all just love music. What about the scene where you live up in Canada? Is it a a bustling scene? Are there lots of different musicians, or do you kind of have to seek it out? No, there's lots of musicians and lots of really good music coming out of Saskatchewan. Cool. And stylistically, where you know, is it all over the map, or is it traditional stuff? What's it like? It's all over the map. I mean, look at Coulter Wall, for example. Yeah. Um, then you got guys like us. Then you got a lot of indie bands. You got a lot of good rock bands. We used to have a really, really big metal and punk scene around here. So there's a lot of really good metal bands that have come out of here. And punk bands are always in Warp Tour and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And then like that traditional scene is growing a lot too. There's um, a lot of really good players around here now. It's interesting the the intersection between punk music and acoustic music. Because there is something so punk rock and heavy metal about, you know, uh, when you're jamming out on acoustic instruments and they're just, they're powerful, they're organic. And I know you mentioned before, Trampled, love those guys. We've been playing with them and crossing paths with them for years. And they've always been such an interesting, awesome example of really just how hard you can rock with acoustic instruments. I definitely hear some of that in you guys and, and and in conversations about the intersection between punk and acoustic the bad livers come up a lot have you checked them out much yeah yeah you know i'm a huge danny barnes fan and he's been prolific and incredible but i always credit the bad livers with being so ahead of their time you know if if the avid brothers fans had got uh, you know, had, had had the bad livers to listen to back in the day when that whole thing was starting. I feel like they would have been, they would have been a, a, a big hit, but I just, I love their stuff, right? Have you, you check out the bad livers. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're wicked. Yeah. Yeah. And they're cool too. They almost have a similarity to you guys because they've got that, that tight three finger banjo picking. I mean, Danny's even more like he knows bluegrass inside and out. But it's cool to hear that element, that style, that thing used in that way. And that's just, you know, one of one of many things I love about about your guys' music. And uh, 
Yeah, man, really excited that we were able to connect today on on the podcast and just wish you guys the best of luck with everything and hope that our paths cross sooner rather than later. Nate, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And I hope the same thing, man. It'd be great to meet you guys on the road. For sure. Well, that'll happen soon enough. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you so much for tuning in. Huge thanks to our sponsors, ArtistWorks, your go-to for online music learning, and Orvis, makers of all kinds of incredible outdoor gear and also leaders in the field of conservation. We are also brought to you by Osiris Media and Americana Vibes. I'll be back here in two weeks for another episode of the podcast, and I honestly have no idea who my guest is going to be yet. I have some incredible interviews in the bank, but right now I'm just trying to get this one out there for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Please, please, please head over to Apple, iTunes, and leave us a review. You can't believe how much it helps. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you back here in two weeks when we go back inside the musician's brain. Osiris. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon. From Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.